look together at the first seven verses in chapter 13 of Hebrews. Uh, we'll read them again. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing them. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do? To me. The structure of, of New Testament epistles is, is typically uh, doctrinal and then practical. Uh, typically the indicative telling you what you are in Christ and then telling you what you must do. This is who you are in Christ Jesus and therefore be who you are, which is a very uh, significant way of of going about things. Uh, if we were to reverse that, we would end up probably with legalism, uh, having uh, rules and, and, uh, and uh, impositions of rules rather imposed upon us without those uh, responses uh, arising out of a deep sense of gratitude for what we are in Christ. Uh, very much uh, the way that chapter 13 fits into the scheme of things. Uh, and this is not a random string of exhortations. There is a, a, a logical uh, arrangement uh, in what we have. Uh, as we will see, the first seven verses can be grouped around the theme of love. Uh, then we have some exhortations on leadership. Uh, and then we have the doxology, focusing on the servant leadership of Jesus and then concluding remarks, practical remarks at the end. Now, uh, if, as we say, the practical applications flow out of the doctrine of the letter, uh, the doctrine of the letters we were thinking of a couple of Thursdays back uh, has been chiefly on the supremacy of Jesus. This is what the letter has been underlining. Jesus is supreme. Therefore, don't go back to that which simply pre-shadowed him. Uh, all the uh, Old Testament worship and forms were shadows pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is supreme over Moses, over Aaron, over angels, over Joshua, over all that came before. And in the midst of the uh, writings on the supremacy of Jesus, there's been a concentration on Jesus' role as priest, Jesus is supreme as priest. And as our great high priest, Jesus has displayed his love for us in laying down his life. He has shown us what love is by going to the cross and there on the cross of Calvary, offering himself as a substitute for sinners. He is our supreme uh, saviour, our supreme high priest. And therefore, as Jesus' people living under his lordship, we are called to live the life of love. And 
The first part of the chapter could be regarded as uh, five marks of Christian love. Uh, it's demonstrated in five ways, four of which are positive and one of which is negative. We are first to love other Christians, we are to love strangers, we are to show sympathy to both those in prison and those who are suffering. Uh, we are to love our spouses, but we are not, negatively, to love money. So the, these verses are configured around the, the great uh, imperative of love. Christians are to love as Christ loved. Brotherly love, then, first of all, Keep on loving uh, each other as brothers. Keep on. Uh, it's a familiar refrain in Hebrews, the, the exhortation to keep on or to persevere. All the way along, we're conscious of the fact that the writer is addressing his remarks to people who are in danger of not keeping on, in danger of flagging, of danger of losing their focus, drifting away. They're to keep their eyes upon Jesus. They're to, to persevere to the end. And here, they are to keep on loving one another. Uh, the word for love is the word Philadelphia. Uh, exactly the same word that we have for the city in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's a, a love which is used of those who claim the same father. Outside the New Testament, that is nearly always the context. It's a love, if you like, of siblings. Now, straight away, we see why that is so apt in terms of the fellowship. Our love for one another arises from our union with Jesus Christ, who has become for us our elder brother. He is the source and the stimulus of our love for one another in the fellowship. Because he is the fathers, we who are united to Jesus are also children of of the living God and therefore brothers and sisters of one another. Therefore for anyone to despise another Christian is to despise a member of the family, to fail to meet the needs of a fellow Christian is to fail to meet the needs of someone who is family. It strikes uh, as close as that. Jesus is the one from whom our love is derived. Jesus is the one who sets the standard of the love that we are to display to one another. Keep on loving each other as brothers. That's to be a distinctive of Christians. Distinctive of Christians. Now, no congregation uh, is perfect, but as I was reflecting on the verse, I reflected on the fact that we are very fortunate in that we are a congregation where there is mutual love for one another. We enjoy being in one another's company and there are uh, plenty of examples of practical care uh, going on. We have people uh, in the congregation who inspire by their warm, sympathetic spirit, interest in others. And I say these things not so that we might become big-headed, but that we might uh, encourage one another uh, to continue in that vein. When Paul is addressing some of the congregations, he affirms them also 
in displaying love to one another. Uh, when he speaks to the Thessalonians, he says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you, are, you, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So Paul affirms the Thessalonians for displaying their love, and then characteristically, uh, he reminds them that no matter where we are in the Christian life, there is always that room for progress. We can also go on further. And so he continues, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Keep on loving one another. Uh, so brotherly love, this Philadelphia love, uh, looks on the interests of those around us as family interests. You know, we have a stake in the well-being of the brothers and sisters around us. We will their good as though it were our own good. That's what it means to have Philadelphia love. Uh, it means we're always ready to view their actions in the most favourable light. Uh, it's something which is worked out in practice. It's the willingness to roll up your sleeves and come alongside your brother when he's overwhelmed by some task that he has to do. Uh, as Jesus displayed his love in the self-sacrificial walk to the cross, uh, Christian love is demonstrated by displaying love even when it is costly to ourselves. We do something uh, when it may mean that we are misunderstood. Uh, we do something even when others would regard it as a lowly task or something even that was demeaning. If it's for the good of our brother and sister, then we will do so. Keep on loving one another. Do it more and more. May love be a hallmark of our fellowship, our fellowship in Hope Church, Hope Ridge. Keep on loving one another. Be hospitable. There we go. There is a, an exhortation which we might find surprising. Uh, love doesn't surprise us to find love uh, there, but to practice hospitality sounds such a, a mundane, uh, obviously domestic uh, characteristic, but we are called to be hospitable. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. The gospel uses the, the hospitality image uh, as a, a metaphor for what it is to have communion with Christ. You know, the, the famous verse in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone uh, Open, answer the door, uh, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So there's a picture of Jesus sitting down uh, with the disciple, engaging in table fellowship. And in response to God's generosity, his hospitality shown to us, we are to show, to show practical hospitality to others and particularly to people who are not in our inner circle. The mention of those who have entertained angels unawares, uh, I think it's obviously mention of Abraham, 
who entertained the, the three uh, men who came to him, uh, and two of them certainly angels, but one of them uh, is addressed as a lord and is thought to be an appearance of the second person of the Godhead, along with two angels. So, here is an encouragement uh, from the life of Abraham. Abraham uh, uh, performs an ordinary act of hospitality to strangers and he has these uh, remarkable uh, guests uh, to grace his table. And in the first century, hospitality was a real ministry that was absolutely essential because of the state of, of uh, inns, uh, for one thing, across the Roman Empire. Uh, inns were generally dirty, flea-ridden places. Uh, they were the kind of places which were uh, inhabited by uh, prostitutes and uh, associated with all kinds of immoral activity. Uh, slaves, of course, and many uh, Christians were slaves. Slaves had no place that they could call home. And there were many isolated Christians throughout the first century uh, fighting a lonely battle, uh, people who welcomed the warmth of a fellow believer's home. And, of course, that's uh, equally true in our own day. As society slips more and more, in, in Scotland at least, towards a secularism, uh, so Christians can feel... Uh, very isolated and the the gift of hospitality having people around uh, drawing people together uh, is such uh, an essential uh, uh, ministry <coughs> the emphasis though here is on hospitality to strangers and the wonderful thing about extending uh, our table hospitality to those who are strangers is that uh, it comes with a reward attached. Jesus speaks of reward. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So giving hospitality to strangers, to people who are not yet Christians, people that we don't really know very well, uh, it's not just exercising uh, a genuine ministry. It comes with Jesus' promise of heavenly reward. It will be rewarded on the last day. It is an investment, if you like. It's laying up treasure in heaven. Let me give an example uh, that some of you uh, will be familiar with. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, the, uh, she was formerly uh, a very out uh, gay spokeswoman. Uh, she lectured in queer theory at Syracuse University in the States. And God's providence brought Rosaria Butterfield uh, into the path of uh, Presbyterian minister by the name of Ken Smith and his wife. And uh, because of the particular circumstances that led them to correspond, Ken and his wife, Chloe, had Rosaria Butterfield round for a meal uh, at least once a week for two years. And she candidly 
uh, acknowledges that she would come and she would have a meal at their place and they would have gospel discussion, they would share their faith and uh, she would argue against it. And then she would go back to work the next day and she says, I, I would badmouth them and demean them uh, in front of my work colleagues. And then the next day we would start all over again. Two years uh, with little sign of this lady coming to faith in Christ. Uh, but uh, she, she came to the Lord, God drew her to himself, and she, she's actually written a book about the importance of hospitality entitled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she says, I wasn't converted by casserole. I wasn't converted by casserole. It was the mighty supernatural power of God come down from heaven that drew me to himself. But the highway over which that travelled was the radical hospitality of Ken and Chloe Smith. Wonderful, isn't it? Uh, that, that was a, a real demonstration of persistent love, demonstrated in a practical way. And there is a real opportunity for us to engage our neighbours with the gospel of Jesus in similar ways through the gift of hospitality. God does not get the address wrong. God has placed us with neighbours sovereignly. Uh, these arrangements are, are no coincidences. And we can look to opportunities to deepen relationships through hospitality. However primitive or elaborate that may be, God gives us these opportunities. This is what uh, Rosario Butterfield says again. Seek strangers and make neighbours. Embrace neighbours, praying that God will make them family. We don't just find guests by osmosis. It doesn't just happen, she says. We have to seek them. Seek them and embrace them as neighbours. Hospitality, then, uh, was the second uh, mark of this Christian love. Then thirdly, uh, third mark is sympathy. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now once again, there's a call to uh, the Hebrews to live as wholeheartedly as they had once done. There's another indicator that they have slid away uh, from that radical commitment that they had at the first. Chapter 10 recalls days when they had stood side by side with those who were insulted and persecuted. You sympathised with those in prison. We're called to enter into the, the feelings of those who are separated from family, uh, who've lost their liberty for the cause of Christ. And, you know, let's be honest, we are removed geographically from most people in that category. Unless we uh, have access to, to prisons and are visiting in prisons. Uh, but there are large numbers of believers throughout the world uh, who have lost their liberty. And some of the, the, uh, the Christian agencies who report on that uh, have magazines and newsletters that we can read. And we can uh, brief ourselves on what's going on. Uh, Barnabas Trust and Response Magazine and, and so on. 
Uh, some of us know the situation of uh, Karen people uh, and other ethnic groups in Burma uh, displaced from their homeland, uh, suffering because of the persecution of an unsympathetic regime, or Christians in North Korea uh, suffering at the hands of a totalitarian regime. Because we are geographically distant shouldn't mean that we can't be sympathetic, uh, but we need to inform ourselves as to what's going on. And it, that's, the, of course, the benefit of, of going and visiting people. Uh, you learn firsthand uh, of the sufferings of believers in other countries. But when we can't do that, we can read about what is happening. Again, one of the marks of the early church was the, the radical way where Christians demonstrated sympathy for those who were suffering. Uh, they did not leave them to suffer in isolation. And uh, there's a, a, a book entitled Expansion of Christianity where a number of uh, quotes from the early church period uh, from non-Christian authors uh, demonstrate the concern that Christians had for those who were suffering. Uh, Aristides, a pagan orator, uh, said of the Christians, if they hear that any one of their number is imprisoned or in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity, and if he can be redeemed, they set him free. Christians were very often uh, sent to the mines to, to work uh, in hard labour, uh, situation like being sent to uh, Gulag in Siberia and the apostolic constitutions, a, a, a rule of Christian conduct laid it down if any Christian is condemned for Christ's sake to the minds by the ungodly do not overlook him but from the proceeds of your toil and sweat send him something to support himself and to reward the soldier of Christ. And Christians are recorded as having sought out brothers and sisters who were in these remote places, working uh, in uh, deep mines, uh, being persecuted in that way, and even establishing churches nearby so that they could uh, engage in worship and have fellowship. Christians became so notorious uh, in, the, in the good sense for bringing relief to fellow believers who were in prison that at the beginning of the 4th century, the Emperor, Emperor Lucinius passed new legislation that no one was to show kindness to sufferers in prison by supplying them with food, and that no one was to show mercy to those starving in prison. It's, it's really good, I think, sometimes to take the, the, uh, the specifics of, of exhortations in Scripture as literally as we can. If it says visit the prisoner, we visit the prisoner. If it says uh, relieve the sick and the hungry, we seek to do that. One situation that um, impressed me very much on a trip in, in, uh, to the Karen was when we were in a Christian guest house waiting to, to move up country. Uh, we met a couple of elderly ladies uh, from England who had come uh, to Bangkok to visit uh, Karen uh, people who had been, they had no papers and so they were in Thailand illegally and they had ended up in prison. And these ladies were going to visit them and they were taking with them oranges and underwear. Oranges and underwear. 
Uh, how practical is that? They were concerned for the dignity of these men and for their health, and they were going in to visit them in prison. Therefore, we need to be active uh, in word as well as deed, however the Lord leads us in that. story told of a diplomat who was going to uh, his first uh, stint in France, going to Paris, and somebody asked him how his French was. And he said, my French is not too bad, all except the verbs. It's a considerable limitation, but sometimes our Christianity is like that. We have plenty of good adjectives and pronouns, Lord and Father, and sometimes the acting is on the deficient side. Sympathy, then fourthly, purity. All should honour marriage and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Christian people are people who are to love their wives and their husbands uh, so that they, whilst unmarried, stay away from all sexual encounters and when they are married, remain utterly faithful. In other words, fidelity toward a wife or husband begins before one meets him or her. And after marrying, there is a fence around that marriage bed that is spoken of here that declares this is sacred. So the issue addressed is of two different varieties, probably. Uh, there may have been a tendency for some people to uh, have been beguiled by the Essene sect, which was a rigorous sect of Judaism, uh, living in communes, one of them famously in Qumran, near the Dead Sea. And they uh, tended to stress uh, celibacy, rigid lifestyles, and taught that the single life was somehow a spiritually higher state. And to combat that, the writer to the Hebrews declares marriage should be honoured by all. Now, the Bible teaches that singleness may indeed be a calling. And it may be for some of us that uh, God calls us to singleness that we might be uh, more readily available to him. Uh, we have less to tie us down, we are more mobile, we are freer to serve the Lord. But being single is not in itself more spiritual than being married. Marriage uh, is to be honoured by all. But on the other hand, it's possible that the temptation was coming in the other direction and it was a temptation to, to slide back into immorality, to be influenced by the world around. Uh, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Uh, one commentator writes, the description immoral designates those people who indulge in sexual relations outside the marriage bond, both heterosexual and homosexual, while adulterous indicates those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. And of course, we're living in an age when uh, that kind of fidelity is completely under attack and norms have been changed to the extent that uh, young people are, are made to feel that if they are not sexually experimenting then uh, somehow they're not equipping themselves for marriage. You know, that is the, the, the devilish lie 
that is uh, spread abroad and we crumble in so many cases under pressure from the gay rights movement uh, who claim that same-sex relationships uh, are to be given equal honour with marriage in society. And to counter uh, these uh, temptations in opposite directions, one to uh, elevating the, the single life and one uh, where all boundaries around marriage are removed. The writer says, marriage should be honoured by all in the marriage bed, kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. And then we come to the final uh, example of love, and it's, uh, it's in a, framed in a, in a negative sense. Be content, don't love money. And if we're surprised again to find it coming hard in the heels of a warning against immorality, we probably shouldn't be, because in the Bible, immorality and greed are very often paired together as vices. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 11, Paul warns the Christians against associating with anyone who calls himself a brother, but who is sexually immoral or greedy. That's striking, isn't it? You know, sexually immoral, we, we regard as a serious offence, and then greed, well, that's kind of tame, isn't it? But they're paired together. Ephesians 5, 3, but amongst you there must not be even a hint of sexually, sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So, there is a connection between greed and immorality. And I think we can see how that is. A greedy person refuses to live out his life within the bounds materially that God has set for him or her. He is always hankering after things which he does not have. And the person who is immoral refuses to live within the bounds that God has set for him uh, in regard to uh, fidelity. Again, the, the writer is dealing with a community which is probably in decline, which maybe at one time uh, would have been uh, less gripping to their possessions than they may be at the present time. Uh, again, there's a, a reminder uh, back in chapter 10 that there was a day when they accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. And now, perhaps, they're showing anxiety that they are in danger uh, if they continue in the Christian path of losing their material possessions. And the Christian, the writer reminds them, must keep his life free from the love of money and practice contentment, radical contentment. He should be content with what he has because he has the continual presence of God. And he underlines his case with two great quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, one, the word of assurance given to the Lord, by the Lord to Joshua, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And the other from Psalm 118 that we sang earlier, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And the logic is that having the Lord 
There's nothing that the world can add to that. There's nothing that the world can take which will be greater than knowing that the Lord is with us all the time. And having the Lord means that we need not feel threatened. We need not feel anxious or concerned at the threat to our material things because he is greater than all. Therefore, the argument goes, let us be content with what we have. Five great imperatives of love. Five ways in which the Hebrews and the Scots today are to follow in the footsteps of our high priest who laid down his life for us. We are to keep on loving one another. We are to show hospitality. We are to show radical sympathy with those who are suffering. We are to live in purity. And we are to show contentment with our material possessions. May God enable us to do that and so show whose we are and whom we serve. Amen. Let's close now as we sing.